Hey, my name is Amanda. I want to thank you for joining us today. We hope that this message inspires you, builds your faith, and helps you find your next step toward Jesus. Enjoy the message. So scripture reading today comes from the book of Colossians. Found in chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He. In case you don't know me, um, and if you don't know me and you care, which you may not care, that's fine. Um, <laughs> my name is Brett Cheek. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and it is a joy to be with you to celebrate a lot of good things going on in the life of our church. We are in a series right now, sermon series, where we're walking through the book of Colossians. That's a letter um, written to an early church, one of the first churches in a town called Colossae. That's where the the name comes from. And one of the first Christians, um, a man named Paul, is writing a letter to them to try to help them with some challenges that they're going through uh, as an, an early church, as, as a young church. Now, a, a lifetime ago, um, I was a, a, a river guide, a whitewater guide uh, in Northern California. And right before you take a group down on the river, you huddle them all up and you give them the safety talk. Have any of you guys ever had the safety talk before you get on a river? Yes, yeah, yeah, just I heard, I heard a vague, uh, like this moan um, a little bit. It's not the best part of the trip. Um, last time I went on, on a river, we were on the Colorado River, and this is just me. I'm at, we're in Arizona, I mean, no, Colorado, but we're in the desert, and we're out there, and, um, and, and the guide, we have this whole group in front, and I'm sitting there thinking, I've done your job, I know this, just get me through this. And out of the whole group, he points at me, and he says, did you put on sunscreen? which tells you something about my complexion. And um, anyway, and when you're given the safety talk, there's a couple of things uh, that you're trying to get people's attention about because the things that are actually dangerous on the river are not the things that people are usually concerned about. They're usually, they usually think that the most dangerous thing on the river are the rapids and the rocks, and that's not true. The thing that you have to try to break through people's concern on is the most dangerous thing on the river is over by the banks of the river where the water is not very deep and the water's not moving that fast. There are plants that are about this tall that go by the, they become strainers, whatever kind of plant they might be. And they're dangerous because they can trap someone's feet easily. And if they're knocked over and the water is any deeper from the distance from your wrist to your shoulder, you're going to be doing push-ups in a low oxygen environment and that is not going to go well. And that is the thing that is the most threatening to your life on the river. It's not the class four rapid. 
Now, it's also not the rocks that people need to really be concerned about. Most of the injuries that happen on the river do not come from rocks. Do you know what they come from? They come from the paddles. They come from the paddles. We, we arm everybody, right? And then you have to give them this speech about on the top of the paddle, there's what's called a T-grip. Your thumb goes under the bottom and your forefingers go over the top. And we have to tell people, no naked T-grips. Because those things find tooth enamel faster than you would imagine, right? And most, so the, the most dangerous things are plants that are this big on the side of the banks and your neighbor. Those are the things that are dangerous. And, and here, Paul is writing to this early church. And I, I imagine that people might wonder, what should we be concerned about as a church? What are the things that are the most dangerous to us? I, I don't think it's the things that they're expecting. And what could be dangerous to us as a church today may not be the things that we think or anticipate are actually the most dangerous. And so I want to dive into that today and took a look. Now, Ron opened us up last week. He looked at chapter one, which has this amazing, um, he's probably borrowing, especially a chunk in the middle, borrowing from an early church poem um, about Christ. And he uses the largest language he has, and he's not done with that. We'll get to some of that today. But he, he is drawing attention to what some people have called the cosmic Christ that Paul is saying that everything that exists comes from Jesus, is for Jesus, and is held together by Jesus. Everything. Everything. The stars, the atoms, and your soul are from Jesus, for Jesus, and are held together by his grace and his power. And here in chapter 2, he's working his way to this issue that he's wanting to address. He didn't write this letter just because he was bored. He is in prison, but that's not why he wrote the letter. He's writing the letter because there's a challenge in the church that he's trying to get to. And uh, starting in verse 6, we'll read every other verse in this chapter. He says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Remember that rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. His biggest concern is this church, as he says, would receive Jesus Christ as Lord, but not continue to live in him. That they would start off receiving Jesus, and he talks about being rooted in Christ, but that it's like their roots would get pulled up and be planted firmly in thin air. And that it is easy for a church to start off in Christ, but to end up rooting itself not in Jesus, but as, as he says, um, in uh, human tradition and uh, in the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Which, like, what does that mean? I'm assuming that's a phrase you don't use often. Do you walk around talking about the elemental spiritual forces of the world? I hope not. That's weird. Right? And, but he uses this phrase a couple of times, uh, and there's some discussion. What does he mean? Is he talking about um, the culture of the world that's around us? Is he talking about the demonic stuff, the spiritual enemy that we have at work in the world? Is he talking about elemental? Is he talking about our human nature, that thing in it that's just bent towards sin and rebellion against God? And my guess is the answer is just yes. Yes. 
um, the early church described our enemies as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And, uh, and whatever, the, the, this stuff out there, um, that we would end up pulling our roots out of Christ and end up planting them in either the world, in ourselves, or in some of the stuff that's running wild in the world that's really not good. And he's trying to get their attention about that. Now, here's the thing. They haven't noticed that they've done that. And that means it's possible as a church for us, for LaCroix Church, to not even notice that even though we start off in Christ, that we have left our roots being planted in Christ, and not even notice that they are now planted firmly in thin air, removed from Jesus and planted more on human wisdom and tradition, planted more on the philosophies of the world, planted more in some of the, the culture of the world. And he's trying to get their attention. And, and how he does that, I want you to watch what he does when he's concerned about a church. Here's his move, verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised, not with the circumcision formed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, there's that, that internal thing that rebels against God, that was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, that spiritual stuff that's out there in the world that is not good for us, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them by triumphing over them by the cross. When he's concerned about a church, the first thing he does is he reminds them of who Jesus is and how good Jesus has been to them. He starts off by saying, Christ in him the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. That God Almighty came to be with us, limited, small, frail, dies for us. That, that God left heaven for you. And he uses this massive language to talk about what Jesus has done for us. That, that he talks about circumcision, which is also probably not a conversation you're having in the break room at, at work. You know, but that was the sign of the old covenant. And, and he's using that as a, as a metaphor for our new sign of the new covenant, which is baptism. This is the sign that we have been buried with Christ and raised with him into new life. And all of our mess of the way that the world used to do things, whether it's the sin of our flesh or the, or the culture out there in the world or the spiritual authorities out there in the world, those have been put off because Jesus has opened up a new way for us by grace he not only came for us, he carried us and carried our sin and carried our shame because he loves us and made a way for us to be with him for forever. So all that stuff, we get to set it aside. Now, what is it that he's so concerned about specifically? Like, yes, it's this issue of starting off in Christ and leaving him and rooting ourselves more in the traditions of the world and the way that the world does things. But what does that look like in the church? 
there are a few ways that I, I think that maybe as a church that we get concerned. Like, what is the thing that we need to most, be the most worried about? And in our culture, I, I hear a lot of church people fretting about, like, losing political influence, for example. Or like, oh, if we could only have prayer back in schools. Or if, if culture would just continue to agree with us on important issues, then we wouldn't feel like we're swimming against the grain all the time. And that's the thing that they want to change. Maybe that's the thing that people are the most concerned about, is we wish that that stuff out there would be different. And that if that stuff out there was different, then we wouldn't be so worried. I, w- I want to take a look at what is it that Paul is concerned about when he's writing to this church? What is the expression of the thing that he's concerned about? Verse 16, therefore, this is the issue. Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Was that what you were expecting? The church nitpicking each other about food and drink? Or with regard to religious festivals, how they worship? New moon celebrations, how you throw a party as a church? Or a Sabbath day? These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they've seen, and they're all puffed up with idle notions uh, by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head. They are, their roots are out of Christ and planted firmly in thin air. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. His concern with this church is that they have gone back to law. That they have gone back to telling each other a bunch of right and wrong and do's and don'ts about stuff they eat and stuff they drink and how they worship and what they do enough of and what they don't do enough of, how they take care of Sabbath and how they honor all of those rules. His big concern with this church is that they have left the gospel of grace and have gone back to telling each other what they need to do with each other's lives and they're driving each other crazy. See, here's here's the thing with, with, with church folks. We will always bend back towards law if you give us long enough. Because here's the thing, the whole world bends towards law. That is how the world functions. It's not just the church. Now, I know some people are like, isn't that the whole thing the church does? Right? I've never known church to be different. Isn't that why we're here? We're here to have the church help me like slap my kids' hands enough so they learn how to be a normal and proper human being? Like, did anybody grow up in that church? None of you grew up in that church. A couple, yes, a couple of you, thank you. Right, and, and like the whole role of the church is to give us enough do's and don'ts so that we grow up to be like respectful human beings. But here's the thing, that is actually, as Paul says, that is re- leaving the gospel of Jesus and planting ourselves in the philosophy of human wisdom and aligning ourselves, not to use too strong a language, with the elemental spiritual forces of the world, a.k.a. the devil. And here's, here's the deal. Law is easier than love. Law is easier than love. It is easier to pick each other's lives apart about a bunch of do's and don'ts. 
And, and why, why is law easier than love? It's because it's all focused on the actions. And the actions are all about what we can see and record. It's all about like check marks and this, that is, um, the, I saw you do the right thing or I can prove to you that I did the right thing. It's all focused on the actions. But it, here's the thing, and if law is all there, see, the problem is our actions grow out of something deeper. They grow out of our intentions, which no one can see but us. Now, I can write someone a thank you letter because I love them. I can also write them a thank you letter to butter them up because I need a favor next week, right? And so my intention can be wrong, even though my action seems right. And law is only concerned with the action, but love wants to go deeper to intention. In fact, I think there's even something deeper than that. There's motivation, which leads to our intentions, which leads to actions. And here's the challenge with motivations. I can see my intentions, the things going on in my mind. I often don't even really know my own motivations. Why did I say the thing that I said? Sometimes I don't know. It just came out of my evil head, right? Any of you ever find yourself apologizing? You're like, I don't even know why I said that. Or driving away from a conversation going, why did I do that? And you don't even know. And here's the thing is love isn't just focused on our actions. It is focused on our actions. You can't do anything and call it love, right? It is our actions matter. But it is always going to work its way down to motivation because Jesus, here's something good, isn't just interested in getting us to act right. He wants to transform our heart. He wants to transform our heart. He wants to find the deepest place in us and bring his love there and say, I want to make you new here. As Paul goes on, he gets into kind of some more specifics um, with, uh, with this church. Verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, the way that the world does things, right? There's that phrase again. Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? He starts poking a little bit of fun at him, I think. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based merely on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom. This is how we look spiritual in front of each other. I've got a lot of do's and don'ts, right? And I can pull them off, so I look, I look good. They have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, so it's really just about me worshiping myself. Their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. That last phrase, can we leave that up there for just a second? That is so sharp on Paul's part. It's, it's almost like there's stuff in the Bible that's like worth learning. See, this law, law is incapable of transforming the heart. It is incapable of transforming the heart. It is incapable of restraining indulgence, that thing that's going on way down in me. Law doesn't transform that. Only love transforms the heart. And he starts picking on them a little bit. Do not taste. Do not touch. Don't do this. Don't do that. Oh, my gosh. Right? And, like, he, he kind of picks on them for being, like, all um, nitpicky. These folks are not a lot of fun. Right? And, and I, I think Paul, he wants something better for them. Now, in case you're worried, just hang on a second. There are entire books in the Bible, other letters addressed to other churches that have adopted the other problem of because Jesus died for me, I get to do whatever I want. 
um, with what I put into my body, with what I do with my body, with, uh, what I, with what I do with my mind, with how I spend my time. So we are not licensing whatever you want in the name of Jesus. Read 1 Corinthians, those people had issues, right? And they had adopted kind of some wild stuff. So we're not talking about do whatever you want. But this book is addressing the church that has turned back to law. Now, you pick a political corner of the world, the far right or the far left, it's all law. It's all law. Here's all the stuff you have to do. Here's all the stuff you have to say. And if you can't live up to all of that, we push you out and we shame you until you can apologize enough and maybe we'll let you back in. Right? The right and the left do it a lot. The world lives by law. Families, there are families that do this. They live by law. You have to do all the right stuff or we push you out and we shame you. There are organizations that do this and the church is inviting people into a life that is centered around the gospel of Jesus that says, I came for you and I carried you and I love you and we're setting that whole conversation of legal indebtedness aside. Law looks a little bit like this if we could walk through it some. Law is always self-referenced. It's always about me and about what I did. It's always about what I did. So it is all, the whole focus is really on me. It, it, it's also focused on action, which we already talked about. It's this thing that's an outward expression. It's about minimums. It's about what is the least that I have to do in order to clear the bar. And if I can live up to it, great. If I can't, then I, I need to carry some shame. It's about legal accountability, it's, it's about that, like, what do you want from me? I texted my mom, happy Mother's Day, right? Well, I don't know. Did, by the way, that's next week. Just heads up, everybody. It's like, it's that, what do you want from me? Let me prove to you that I did what I'm supposed to do. I've got it on paper, yeah? And, and that's kind of where it all stops. And it always produces fear and pride, because either you can't live up to the, the, the minimum and you carry fear and shame, or you can, and congratulations, now you're puffed up with pride, and both roads lead to hell, right? Because it's all about me. The gospel sets us free from all of that and gives us a different place to start. The love of God is always grace-referenced, and the church can live a life that is also grace referenced. It's not about me. It's about what I've been given. It's about what's been done for me because he cares for me. Um, it, it looks to motivation. It moves past just the action and it gets, it gets, down, to, it gets down to a conversation about why. Why, why did I do that? Um, I've noticed with my own motivations, I need people around me that can help me dig into it and ask good questions because sometimes uh, I, I'm not sure of my own motivations. It's, it's in reference to overflowing thankfulness because of what God has done for us. Love is in response to thankfulness, which, which, will come, which we'll come back to uh, it, at the beginning of Colossians again. It's about relational accountability. Love has accountability. It absolutely has accountability. I can't say that I love my wife and kids and do whatever I want. There's accountability there, but it's relational. It's not legal. It's not legal. It's look me in the eyes. It's tell me what's going on, because something there seems off to me, so let's address it, and I, and I can open myself up to someone speaking into my life, and it doesn't matter that I can prove to you that I did the right thing. It's about what's really going on in my heart, and that's harder. That's harder, but it's 
better. And it always ends up producing freedom and humility. Freedom and humility is what love produces. And, and I think Paul, he's inviting people into that kind of conversation. But it's harder. Law is easier than love. We can just like check all the boxes. I mean, if I could just run a couple of practices through that, like um, he references Sabbath. Sabbath is a good one to practice. Um, He he talks about how laws are, the laws of the Old Testament, there's 613 of them, by the way, um, in case you want to keep tally. Um, He talks about them as a shadow of the thing to come. Now, Sabbath. So God rescues a group of slaves that have been enslaved for 400 years out of Egypt. And he says, hey guys, I've got a big idea. How about we take one day a week and you eat really good food, you take naps, and you do whatever you want. Does this sound like a good idea or a bad idea? This is a good idea, right? Right, right, right. And, and, and these folks, so they, they end up building a lot of laws around Sabbath, and Jesus ends up frustrating the religious leaders of the day around the laws about Sabbath. He tells a guy to pick up his mat after he's healed him and walk, and they get all mad at Jesus because they managed to turn something that was about love into law. It was a shadow of the thing to come. Now, we could, we could turn it back into law as Christians. We could make it about minimums. Uh, we could make it about, um, did you do too much work? Did you, you know, whatever? Did you rest enough? And we could chase each other on that. Or it could be a conversation about love. Say, there's a shadow in the Old Testament of about 24 hours every week. We should just remember that God gives us grace and we don't have to earn a thing. So what does that look like for you in your life? Um, that is, practicing Sabbath has been one of the most transformative practices in my Christian life. But it's not about minimums, because there is no law. There's only love to receive. It's grace referenced. What does it look like to respond to the grace that's been poured out of my life? And, and to be thankful, to be thankful for that, to allow accountability into my life, to allow someone to ask me, are you resting well? Because you matter so much that God died for you. Are you resting well? What would that look like? And maybe I, I could, I could in, invite a little bit of humility and freedom into my life. Because there is no law. And we talk about personal finances. Which each, um, each week in the series we want to take a bit to talk about personal finances. A couple reasons. One is that we haven't taught on um, personal finance in a very long time um, as a church. The second is that it's so easy to talk about. (laughs) It is not so easy to talk about. Here's the thing. Money is our most tangible form of power, influence, and security. And you know that if you don't have enough. You know that if you don't have enough. It feels like I don't have enough power to keep a roof over my kid's head. It feels like I don't have enough influence to keep everybody fed. And we, we know that money is influence because if I ask my son to mow the yard and he says, not right now, and I say, I'll give you five bucks, he jumps up and does it, right? Apparently, if I have $44 billion sitting around, I can buy Twitter, <laughs> right? That's influence I can't wrap my head around, yeah? And when it's our most tangible form of power, security, and influence, we tend to keep it close to the vest, right? And here's the thing. The church has often approached that through law, minimums and fear, and pride because I did enough, or shame because I didn't do enough, or, or whatever, and it's all about legal accountability. Here's the thing. There, there is no law. No law. 
Is there a shadow in the Old Testament? In the law? Sure. Yeah, tithing. I have never not tithed. Ever since I was 14 and had that job at Toys R Us that was the closest to hell I've ever been, I, uh, I, I, have, tried, I, I have tithed. I have given 10% of my income to the local church. Right? I'm, I turned 40 in June. I'm on the slow slide into the coffin. Right? And, and I, I'm, I'm trying to... I'm, I'm tithing. I am. And I think that we should start our conversation there. The, the 10% of what we earn to the, to the local community that we're involved in discipleship with. It would be weird to like receive a lot from a community and not invest in it, right? It would be weird to think that, yes, this church does really good things and it cares for people and it impacts the world and I'm, it's going to raise my kids or help walk my friends through hard times or divorce or mental crisis or economic crisis or whatever, but think that I'm not going to put anything towards that. That would be weird. That would be weird. And so there, there's a shadow in the Old Testament, but there is no law. It's love. What does our personal finance look like in response to grace? Or overflowing thankfulness. No, no minimums to worry about. But I, I found that love is tougher than law because we have to have conversations about motivation. What's the why? Whatever it is that I'm doing. Maybe, maybe someone gives a lot but it's coming out of the wrong place and they need to not. Maybe, maybe someone is having a hard time letting go. Well, why? Why? Maybe there's a conversation there about love. There is no law. There's only response to grace. Um, as, uh, as Paul talks about, uh, back to verse 6, so then, just as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. What, if we could leave that up there for a second, what would practicing Sabbath, or serving the poor, or spending time in prayer in scripture, or investing in the lost, or personal financial giving, what would it look like if it was defined by that verse? I'm betting you'd love your life a lot more, and I would too. I would love my life a lot more if I was living that well. See, here's the thing. Um, law is easier than love, but love is greater than law. Love is greater than law. The people that you know that their life is just so, such a gift to the people around them, it's because they, they live out of love and not out of law. It's, it's tougher, but man, it's worth it. Um, as, as Paul continues um, in uh, just the first couple of verses of chapter 3, he says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. This is a resurrection conversation. How we live not under law, but under love. This is a resurrection conversation that we get to be living signs of the resurrection of Jesus walking around in the world. Because the rest of the world is stuck in a conversation about legal indebtedness. You owe somebody with how you act. But Jesus has set all of that aside with the gospel. And we get to respond to grace out of love. And that is a sign that God is making a new world right here and now. And the people you work with need to see that. The people you live with need to see that. The people you interact with need to see that. We need signs of the resurrection. 
walking around in the world and inviting people to leave behind the hollow philosophies of man and the elemental spiritual forces of this world and invite people in response to the cross of Jesus Christ. Yeah? Let's pray. Lord God, um, we, we want to turn from the way that the world does things, which is so easy to adopt as a church. That's about law. Help us to be rooted in you where we are overflowing with thankfulness for who you are and what you've done for us. And that you would help us walk in love, not nitpicking each other's lives or judging one another. There is no law. But help us to respond in love in every area of our life. Send your Holy Spirit to help us do that. We want to live like the resurrection of Jesus is real. Because the world needs it a lot. Thank you, God. Amen. If you enjoyed today's message, make sure to subscribe to this channel. Feel free to share this with others that God has put on your heart. To learn more about LaCroix Church or to find your next steps, head to lacroixchurch.org. Thanks again for checking us out, and we hope to see you soon.